Okay, well, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And we have yet another wonderful, fantabulous, stupendous, keep on with the adjectives, guest who I have been really dying to chat with. So I'm so excited that Carolina Valle is here. And you all know I don't do bios. So I'm going to ask Carolina to introduce herself. Well, I think to answer that question, I really need to first share a little bit about my background and how I identify myself. I serve as a board member for a local progressive school, and we've been a committee recently talking about our identities. And we did this exercise where we shared what our race is, what our ethnicity is, and what our culture is. And it really helped me describe who I am and kind of tell my story and why I do this work. And so I think the first thing to know about me is what my race is. I identify as biracial, although people do see me and see the way I present as more Latino, especially here in the United States, where we define people in very strict racial categories. My mom immigrated here from Nicaragua after I was born in the late 1980s, but my father is from Florida. I lived with my mom growing up. I didn't meet my father until I was about 12 years old, but I actually spent my summers with my white grandparents from Florida. And so I have a very close connection to both sides of my family. You know, I think here in America, we tend to racialize people, but my mother really instilled in me a strong identification with my ethnicity and specifically being Nicaraguan. And so a lot of our family stories growing up were really rooted in the story of Nicaragua in the 1980s, which, as folks might know, was a time of great turmoil because there was the Sandinista revolution happening at that time, which was really a movement among people to resist a legacy of dictatorship. But what we later learned was also a proxy war for imperial powers, a proxy war um, in the Cold War. And so very early on, I had a very strong understanding of sort of concepts around empire and imperialism and colonialism, um, but also a real set, a real kind of isolation too. There's not a large Nicaraguan population here in Los Angeles. And so I think that's really important to know about me. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about being biracial. I would often ask my mom growing up, mom, what am I? Where am I from? And she would say, you know, don't worry about it. You're an Angelino, because I think she really had a strong understanding that all of this was a social construct anyways. And so I live here. I grew up here. I went two hours away for college and I quickly came back. And so I identify very closely with that part of myself, too. And, you know, those three pieces, I think, encompass a huge part of who I am. I, I love that. And I love the way you sort of unpacked it and and how your mom says, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And kind of finds a way to give you a language and also understand the social con- construct. And, you know, I, I can think back to, you know, growing up, especially in school, you know, we would learn about quote unquote slavery and everybody would say, because I was primarily in uh, predominantly white schools, ah, well, you're from slaves. And I and I would ask myself, well, where's the country of slave? Like, I, you know, I was trying to understand it. I'm like, I'm not a slave. That's not a country. That's not a culture or ethnicity. So, you know, similarly, I was learning more at home about what it all meant. But, um, and, and one day my dad was worried because somebody, I came in and I asked my father, was I a Negro? 
And he was like, oh my gosh, who's outside calling my daughter a Negro thinking somebody was making fun of me um, at the time that that wasn't the case. I think I heard it on TV. And so he then had to sit down and have the conversation with me about what did that mean? And yes, I am. And make sure I understood it. And I was proud about it. That was the language used then, by the way. Yes, I'm older than dirt. So, um, so I really appreciate kind of how you talk about the the culture and the framing of, um, you know, being Nicaraguan also kind of gives you sort of this context around imperialism and, and um, you know, those sorts of things, which we'll, we'll get into as well. So when you got into sort of your work life and trying to figure out, no, oh, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to be a social worker. How, how did that even come to be? Yeah, so I also grew up specifically in the Pasadena area, and I went to private schools, largely with white families. And my mom at the time was going to Pasadena City College to get her AA, and then she went on to get her bachelor's in Latin American studies. And so I was what people call a latchkey kid. Um, I have an older brother. He's almost 10 years older than me. But I spent a lot of my time at other people's homes. And I had a very close friend whose mom was a social worker. And she was very helpful towards me, but also she would tell stories of being helpful. And when I got older and I finished college, I had gotten my degree at UC Santa Barbara in Black Studies. And a lot of times people will also ask me, side note, why do you have a degree in Black Studies when you don't present as Black or you don't identify that way? And I tell them the story of my background because I think it really provides context for this understanding of global imperialism and its impact on all people of color. But also, I'm an Angelino and a Californian. And so my understanding of what that looks like very much has presented in the context of that Black-white dichotomy here in Los Angeles. And I grew up in a primarily Black and Brown neighborhood. So when people ask me, why do you have your degree in Black studies? I say, well, that's just a degree in American history, right? And that's right. just the story of people who have been oppressed across the globe, but also their story of success here too. Oh, wow. That is, <laughs> I was going to ask you about the Black Studies thing, but I love your response. Uh, hello, that is a degree in American history. Like, hello. That's really, that's really rich. I love that. So then you went on to, like, after you did your degree in Black Studies, then sort of how did you kind of take what you learned and what you understood and what was shared with you as a child into sort of now this is the area where I want to do my work? So to be totally honest, I had no idea what I wanted to do after college. It was 2009, which is when the economy had crashed and we were all wondering what was going to happen with jobs. And so I remember I decided, oh, I really want to be a teacher. And so I decided to work in a couple of public elementary schools, specifically on reading and helping people learn how to read. And in that experience, I really observed and learned that what people were dealing with, what families were dealing with was much bigger than what was happening in the school system. And so I had taken a trip, my first trip actually back to Nicaragua to visit family there. And I remember looking on the computer in there, you know, they have these like Wi-Fi centers that you can go to and do internet browsing because not a lot of people have private home computers. And I remember looking up social work and I saw what the values were. And I thought, oh, 
this looks like something that I would be interested in, right? The code of ethics being service and cultural competence and social justice and dignity. And I thought, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I do like what I'm seeing here. And so that's how I got into the field of social work and started my training. So so how I met you was was not in your practice of social work, but more in the policy realm. And I and I always think people, when people think about policy or activism or advocacy, sometimes they don't they they don't think about, well, I could they think maybe I need a degree in public health. A lot of people think they need a degree in public health or they need a legal degree, like a JD or something like that. So how did you how did you kind of navigate that social work to from practice to policy? So I had spent about five years doing field-based social work in public housing, in affordable housing. And then I went on to do home visiting for families here in LA County that have recently had young children. And that's where I really cut my teeth in policy because after a while, I had started to see large volumes of families, primarily black and brown families, but also recent families who had immigrated here from Southeast Asia too. And I was not only learning about their child rearing practices and their stories, but I also was seeing overarching issues with the social safety net, with um, you know, financial stressors. And so the work that I was doing, I had originally thought it was about working with individual families, but it quickly became a job about policy change because what we were seeing was a number of families who needed to be and were looking to be connected with county mental health services, but were unable to either because they didn't have access to Medi-Cal or access to transportation, or they, they didn't feel trusting of the provider that they were connected to, or the person who called them on the phone hung up, right? So it was through that work that I started to see some of the gaps, particularly think in our mental health system and thought to myself, this is really important. We have a serious mental health crisis happening among early moms, first time moms, immigrant families, African-American families, where we're seeing their cultural practices not being respected and incorporated. We're seeing a lot of abuse by the medical system. And we're also seeing the failure of our safety net to provide adequate culturally appropriate mental health care. And so that's how I really started to transition into the policy aspect of what I now do. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Thumbs up, claps, snaps the whole nine yards when I'm like really excited about what I'm I'm hearing, because I think we, we talk about access broadly in mental health, you know, lack of access for a variety of reasons. And sometimes the one that doesn't rise to the top is this lack of of access from a, a cultural lens, cultural and or linguistic lens. And, you know, we, we fight that by trying to you know, do something on the service side, but but what you're saying, if I'm if I've got it right, is that there's policy change that can drive what happens on the service side rather than beating your head on trying to do it just on the service side. It's a both and. But so, what kind of work are you doing now? So now we do. I do a lot of work around. Um, it's a few different things, but I think one of the big pieces is really about first listening to communities and what communities desire. Um, listening to what they want and what their hopes and dreams are for when we think about mental health and well-being. Historically, the way that our 
policy system has thought about mental health is counseling or no counseling, right? But when we actually listen to communities across the state here in California and diverse communities, we hear that the way people are defining mental health and wellness for themselves is actually much more diverse and expansive than the our policy is defining it. And so the work that we do is really to shift that medical model of mental health into a model that is based on people's strengths and cultural assets and histories. Because what we're starting to see actually is that there's an emerging body of research and evidence that shows the measurable impact of people's connection to their community and its impact on their mental health and well-being. So we do a lot of work to bridge the information and the stories that people are telling us with policy change. And um, that is mostly at the statewide level, and it's much harder than it sounds. Um, But I think in terms of the framework in which we operate, that is very much the framework in which we operate. And I'll say to you know, in that context, a lot of what we actually do is have to reframe people's understanding of mental health and well-being, but particularly some of the deeply embedded ideas and stereotypes about people of color and mental health and well-being. We do a lot of work to also redefine those stories so that people have an understanding that what they learned in school about science really is is actually in fact not true. And so um, we have to get at those sort of root causes, I think for us to do meaningful policy change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think you're right. It's, it's, not, it's not easy work, it's very hard because it's, it's, you know, paradigm shifting, like major paradigm shifting and sometimes turning a person's understanding or what they learned or believe totally upside down, which takes time. But um, I want to see it happen, but I have to recognize how hard it is for people to change. I know. I was just making me think too, Karis, about in mental health specifically, we think about as the clinician or as the social worker, or as the provider, I'm going to provide this treatment over the course of 12 weeks. And at the end of those 12 weeks, I expect to see change in that person, right? But really, I think what a lot of interesting research that's happening in communities of color is showing is that we're looking more at the lasting impact of interventions that are strengths-based. And what we're seeing is it's not over 12 weeks, right? It's over six months, it's over 12 years, it's over three years, it's over five years. Yeah, it's so funny as you're saying that, it's like we're asking the people we serve to change, but we find it difficult ourselves in the systems to change. That's when I sort of had the light bulb go off about, look, on both sides of this, the the provider, the system, the patient, the person, change is tough. Change takes time and we sometimes will fight it. But many people will say on the consumer side or the patient side, oh, yeah, well, you know, they have anazignosia or they don't want to be involved or they're being recalcitrant or, you know, use all sorts of, I would say, pretty um, inflammatory language that's about the human process of change. But you turn around and you ask the system, if you had to like motivational interview the system, I think it would be very interesting to find out what stage of change the system is at and what it would take to move the system to the point of um, acceptance and moving forward. So I I think that's sort of a funny dynamic when I think about it. 
isn't that what COVID taught us, our system, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask, since I know where you work, (laughs) is if you could talk a little bit about exactly where you work and your role there. Yeah, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. So I work at the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network, and we are a statewide multicultural health policy advocacy organization. And it's our firm belief that For us to be free in health justice and racial justice, we need to seek the collective liberation of all people. And so our job is really to ensure that racial equity is embedded in all health equity health efforts across the state. And it's very much connected to what I've talked to you, Karis, about um, understanding that for us to really um, achieve wholeness, that we need to be looking at, you know, the experiences of our brothers and sisters here throughout California so that we can really sort of resist some of the, you know, I think harmful policies that are happening across the state. So what is your, what is your role at um, CPEN? I I call it CPEN. So what is your role there? I'm the policy director at CPEN. So my job is to really oversee our policy work in the area of mental and oral health policy, if anyone is interested in dental as well. And so the work that we do is really about um, listening to communities across the state to ensure that any of the policy work we do is informed by their voices. Love that. Love, 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 love that. So, you know, we're talking a little bit about what's happening um, in in mental health, but we're going to get down to the nitty gritty now of what we're seeing most recently in mental health and substance use disorder sort of policy space, which is a, okay, I'm going to be a bit draconian, but it feels very draconian. I'm going to let you talk about it and I'm just going to pipe in, but, but, you know, we know what's happening and it's kind of like, why is it happening and what do we do about it? What do we need to pay attention to? Yeah, so I think right now we as Californians, as Angelinos, as people of color should be really concerned about the direction of mental health policy here in California. We've seen several new initiatives recently that are um, changing our system to move more in the direction of forced treatment and coercion um, for people that are experiencing really significant, you know, suffering and pain. And so we have some really significant concerns about this um, because th- this is not an evidence-based approach. And I think the sort of shining example of this is the care court um, program that was recently introduced and is now in the process of being rolled out, which is creating an entire new, entirely new court system for people, um, a court system that can now make decisions about other people's health and well-being. Yeah. um, And that's not only happening here. Um, You know, we're seeing sort of the rise of using involuntary mechanisms to get people into existing treatment. I want to use that word, um, if that's okay, kind of classified in that way or qualified in that way in New York and Washington State and other places uh, with, you know, California and the, the care court initiative sort of being talk to us and and I hope it's okay to say sold to us, if you will, as, oh, but it has recovery and empowerment in the word. Um, You know, it has uh, a choice. A person can choose to be a part of the care court plan should they be recommended through a petition. So how, how do you understand, like, how do we explain what all of that means? Because maybe for some people, it's like, well, wait, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. I mean, that's really understandable that folks might feel that way or wonder that um, because we are seeing a really huge 
crisis in mental health and homelessness here in California. And we do need to address that. I think the problem with initiatives like CareCord is that it doesn't recognize what decades and decades have told us about forced treatment, which is that it doesn't work. It doesn't produce the outcomes that people want or what the system desires either. So this exact system, it's going to exacerbate the disparities that it is seeking to address, right? It's going to worsen the problem that it's trying to solve. And so I think what we really need to think about is what are those existing solutions in the community that really do put people on a path to recovery rather than on a path toward conservatorship, which many folks might be familiar with, with the case of Britney Spears, right? Um, For folks that are interested in that, I'm sure Karis can speak more to it. But really, this is just, from our perspective, a long runway toward conservatorship. Um, And so it does not Um, connect people to more housing. It doesn't guarantee housing. It doesn't guarantee access to a culturally competent provider. And care court does not um, guarantee that a person um, will be safe through this program. And so I think we have some really significant um, concerns and, and frankly, opposition to the care court initiative for some of those reasons. Yeah, that's that's exactly why I qualified um, the idea of connecting people to treatment. It's treatment as we know it today. That's why I say existing treatment. And many times, um, you know, folks have uh, access treatment previously. Um, it may not have worked for them. It may not have been accessible uh, either culturally or linguistically. It may not be when, where, and how people are able to access in their communities. So to subject people to that existing structure as it is through a court process that has consequences if you don't participate, I think is also a bit scary. And and that's kind of what I've been talking about is how are we going to ensure that the services and supports are available when, how, and where people need them in a culturally, I call it culturally aligned or relevant way, linguistically aligned or relevant way. That's that's my concern. If it wasn't there before, how's it suddenly going to exist now just because they're in a care court plan? Yeah. And I think um, this is where I think our policy making system fails or falls short because part of the work that we need to do as advocates is to listen and learn from people with lived experience. And when we do that work, what we learn is that there ain't no care in care court, right? And and there are solutions, but we haven't gotten them recognized by the system or invested in properly. And so that's where we need to turn our attention to when we talk about what needs to change in our mental health system, not the legal system. Right. So when you talk about things that are existing in the community, like what kind of things are those? And I know we've talked about them on the podcast before, but I certainly want to make sure that you can articulate them as well. Well, I'll say first, you know, everyone has basic needs. We all have basic needs that need to be met, right? Think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Or if you think about it in terms of the medicine wheel that our indigenous brothers and sisters have taught us about, which is more of 
kind of a balanced approach rather than a hierarchy. And I think that's the first thing that we all need to recognize is that no matter where we are in our lives, we all have basic needs that need to be met. And that could be spiritual needs. It could be um, economic needs. It could be community needs, right? There was a recent report that came out that showed we have a loneliness epidemic here in the country happening here. And so that's all contributing to our mental health and well-being. It's not just the traditional counseling or no counseling approach. And so we really need to think about what are the social determinants of health and of mental health here? And what are those solutions that we can continue to replicate? And what we have found through some of the work here in California around sort of better understanding those community-defined solutions is they are having a measurable impact on people's mental health and well-being. And so that's solution number one. I think solution number two is expanding the way we define the mental health workforce. Historically, we've thought about licensed professionals as the only provider of mental health care. But when we listen to people and when we listen to communities, what we hear is that there are lots of other types of mental health professionals in the community that we can add to the workforce and grow. And that includes peers, that includes community health workers and promotoras, that includes traditional healers. So I think that's a huge piece of the solution here. And then the third piece is allowing people to define access for themselves, ensuring that everyone can have that home where they go to get their mental health needs met, right? Because what the research shows is right now people don't know where to turn. And when they do turn somewhere, it's not very good. Okay. So there's a lot of work to be done, clearly, and a lot of information to be shared. And I know, you know, you know, we've come together, you know, in this work to be able to figure out like how to share that information, who to share that information with, et cetera. So I, I guess I'm I'm trying to also kind of piece together what you learn from your parents and your family around sort of, you use the word, um, I think you use the word imperial or empire. Is that the word that you use? Yeah. I, I talk about colonial, but so so I think they're both probably the same, but how do how do we connect the two with this um, institution, if you will, of maybe psychiatry, psychology, mental health, medical model, like all of those things? Because it's it's interconnected. It's so interconnected, and I think part of what you're reminding me, Karis, is that when we think about the way that services are designed or or how policy is designed, it's very siloed, right? It makes it really hard to tackle the the fullness of people's lives and issues that people are experiencing because policy does not take an intersectional approach, but people have intersectional lives. And so for me, that framework is very much rooted in my personal story because of my mom's experience growing up in Nicaragua during a time of great turmoil, where she was quite literally living in a country that was a proxy for imperial powers. And so Nicaragua is um, not only Latino as a, you know, the United States or the Western model would define, but it's also full of people from the Caribbean, from South America. And so it's actually a quite diverse um, country. And when we came here to Los Angeles, I grew up in 
Los Angeles, it was a black and brown community. I went to school with many people of different backgrounds. And I remember the first VHS tape that I had growing up was a tape about the global exploitation of Disneyland workers. And if you ever open up a t-shirt from Disneyland, you might see the country Nicaragua listed on the label, right? And so my mom, as I mentioned earlier, went back to school and she got her degree in Latin American studies. And it was very clear to me growing up and very much part of our family's story that our struggle is connected to other people's struggles. And so that's part of the work that needs to happen in policy, both in terms of the process and the way that policy is designed, but also in terms of the way that we're defining mental health and well-being. Wow, that's that's really fantastic kind of way to frame it. And you know, makes me think how you know, my my concern about coercion and being coerced it does make me think about what generations of my folks have been fighting for related to freedom and enslavement. And people will say, well, you know, that's different. And and I will ask, well, how is it different? Well, you know, that was done against, you know, people's will. It was, it was harsh. It was traumatizing. Um, and it wasn't about, you know, doing something for their own good where using coercive mechanisms to get people in treatment is supposed to be ultimately about doing something to help the person for their own good. And, and I would have to say, uh, well, if you actually read how people thought about Africans who were enslaved, the thought was they were helping them that you know these were people who did not have the cognitive ability to be able to survive to be able to help themselves and so you know the 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 slave masters were supposed to be doing things because they were being benevolent even whipping there was some benevolence there which we know of course is ridiculous right so so i it it, it kind of makes me cringe a little bit when people say well we're doing it for their own good uh, i just struggle with it just as a black person knowing the history of what it means to be have somebody disempower you yeah and it's so much rooted in the history of this country and the history of the globe right when we think about scientific racism scientific racism also impacted the field of mental health and psychiatry which i think you're speaking to Karis, the idea that there is something inherently wrong with people of color is very much a stereotype and paradigm that policy change functions upon. And we have to be really vigilant about fighting those stereotypes because they continue to impact the field of policy and work today. We see that with the DSM, right? The sort of authoritative guide on diagnosing people with mental health, quote unquote, disorders, right? It wasn't until 1973 that the DSM stopped classifying homosexuality as a mental health disorder. And it continues to pathologize transgender identities today, right? And we see that also in the overdiagnosis of Black people with serious mental illness. It's not because Black people are more likely or biologically prone to have serious mental illness. It's because of the function of really scientific racism and implicit bias in our public mental health system. Yeah, definitely. And and certainly, you know, you know, black folk trying, it's like putting a, a round peg into a square hole. And we're continually trying to be, or or made to be, I don't know that we're trying to be, but we're asked to be 
a square when we're round, for lack of a better way. It's the only analogy I can come with up with at the moment. And every time you try to adjust yourself to fit into that square hole, you're changing something inherently about yourself, which, which causes mental distress at the end of the day. I think Martin Luther King got it right when he talked about, you know, what, what we do is we are always um, in a state of creative maladjustment, which isn't a psychological diagnosis. It, you know, it's it's more around, it is a protective factor for us to be able to exist in a society that isn't built by us. It wasn't built by us for us, in other words. So, so yeah, it's, it's I, I wish we could put time in freeze frame and just freeze everything. <laughs> Here I go with my kind of weird thoughts, you know, but you know, put put time like freeze frame time right now, and that everybody who has to work on this issue from the behavioral health directors to the legislators to people with lived experience, family members, policy people, housing people, educators, that while time is stopped, we could actually sit down and try to really resolve these issues and develop a system that would work for all. But we can't freeze time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not the way it works, sadly. Um, and as you said at the top, you know, policy works fast, works fast and furious and doesn't have time to sit down and tackle these really intersectional, difficult problems. So what you were saying earlier made me think of the expression. It's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we're going to wrap up um, or, or we're coming time to wrap up. But before we do the whole wrap up situation. I um, always ask the guests to do some wisdom dropping. It's wisdom dropping time, which means you're going to share a piece of wisdom with the audience. It could be an action step. It could be something you want them to think about. So what piece of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, gosh, what a big question. I I don't know. There's so much wisdom to share, but I would say um, probably the thing that I revisit often is... um, And the thing that I try to be vigilant against is this concept of um, oppression hides in ambiguity. The idea that um, without knowledge and without learning and without understanding, we are going to continue to be oppressed and harmed. And so I'd really encourage everyone to um, continue to seek knowledge and understanding of what is happening in your communities um, when it comes to mental health and well-being and what is happening at the state level, too, because we don't want oppression to hide in that ambiguity. Wow. Wow. Snaps, claps, thumbs up, everything. So now after you've shared that wisdom dropping, which was amazing, this is where I get to do the do uh, because the producer reminds me that I need to ask people to like, subscribe, comment. So make sure you do that. But of course, the most important thing to do is to share the podcast so folks can have access to the wonderful information that our guests are sharing and can learn more about what's happening in mental health uh, from our policy folks, social workers, people with lived experience, the whole nine yards. So remember to share. And until next week, thanks for joining us on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.